0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Your membership donation is tax deductible and the best way to show you believe in our work and the importance of a free, food-focused media resource. Consider donating today at heritageradionetwork.org by clicking the donate button. Thanks for your support and enjoy the show.
2: This is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers, by young farmers. I'm coming to you from snowy Essex, New York. We have a house full of greenhorns and much, much project making here going on. And I'm drink today on the phone by Michael from uh, Bean Farm in Minnesota. Hi there.
1: Hey, how are you?
2: Sorry, it's Easy Bean Farm. Yeah. That's a crazy
1: name, Michael. How did you choose your name? Well, it's uh, actually an incredibly silly story. Uh, When we started our farm, I started this farm with two friends in 1996, and we were headed to uh, the Organic Growers Conference in uh, Wisconsin, and we felt like we needed to have a name, otherwise no one was going to take us seriously, as if anyone would take us seriously anyway and uh... we were kind of fighting over what we were going to name our farm we had these very uh... earthy sounding names and then kermit the frog came on the radio or the tape i guess i think it was a tape singing it's not easy being green and i'm not sure i don't remember that final step how we went from that to our name being easy bean but uh... somehow we did it and then we thought it was temporary and then, you know, perhaps three or four years later, I thought, oh, it's so silly, it's so goofy. We should really change it. And but then everybody we talked to said, no, 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 it's distinctive. We remember it. So here we are, seventeen years later, still with the same goofy name.
2: Well, it just goes to show, you know, there's this almost like a kind of a chronology now, the different phases of farm naming periods. And then yeah. there's just like there's only so many blue heron farms that you can have. Number one
1: yeah and yeah it was it's silly, and it's actually funny. We get calls because we're listed in various organic directories. We get calls, international calls from all over looking for distributors of edible soybeans. I mean we've had many things like that where people are constantly calling us for things that we don't do just because our name has got the word bean in it, and of course, there's nothing easy about growing beans anyway, so it's a really dumb name, but whatever
2: <laughs> so do so do you grow beans?
1: We do. I mean, it's one of the you know maybe seventy something crops we grow, but uh, I don't. Yeah, they're not. They grow well. It's the picking, of course, that is. I guess they're easy to grow. They're just like, keeping them picked is always a challenge. To get our, our crew becomes less and less motivated as the weeks go by to pick beans. So,
2: so give us a tiny little, um, a tiny little sketch out of your operation and of your kind of landscape. Context okay. in terms of crops, ecology, and social world. Uh, sure. For your farm. Okay.
1: Well, we our farm is located way, way out in a deep rural setting. I would say we're about 140 miles west of Minneapolis and Saint Paul. Uh, we're in the glaciated area of Minnesota, so it's this is formerly prairie. There's still a few remnants of prairie. Um, our farm is 120 acres and sits. In a river valley, it's sort of bisected by the uh, Chippewa River, which feeds into the Minnesota, which then just south of here feeds into the Mississippi. Um, so we have largely kind of sandy alluvial soil, sandy and silty alluvial soils on the farm. Um, Where for our area, our farm has a landscape that's not that typical. It's a little more rolly, um, and of course, it's more wooded, being in the river valley. Uh, we're surrounded by you know very very large corn and soybean largely operations There's some sugar beet um, but you know this is sort of this when people talk about the bread basket this is it right around here um, you know I think the average farm size in in our county sits close to a thousand acres uh, at this point or eight hundred acres I can't remember something in that range um, so yeah so we have uh on our hundred and twenty acres we have uh, we've done about 29 acres of tree planting um, uh, since we got here in 1996. We've done some prairie restoration work. We have about 16 acres that we have in our vegetable rotation. We have about 42 acres that are part of a rotational grazing system, um, which also we have tree plantings on with the idea of doing some silvopastoral stuff. And, uh, yeah, but the uh, our farm, the Easy Bean Farm, part of our farm, is uh, largely a CSA. We have about a 280-share CSA. Um, and um, I don't know. What else can I say? Wait, it's, uh, we, we grow this sort of a very wide range of crops, uh, you know, pretty much everything that we can think of growing. We try to grow at least that grows well in the upper Midwest here. Um, and then you know, we do a little bit of this and that uh, besides the vegetables. Uh, so we have some chickens and we've raised cattle and, um, this and that, so.
2: Holy smokes, you guys are doing so many things.
1: Yeah, well, we've actually pared down. We had the, the typical new farmer, this is now many years back, uh, but we had the new farmer thing of wanting to do everything. So we had dairy goats and we had, uh, you know, we've, we've done it all, I think, at, and not very successfully sometimes. Um, but then, at a certain point, you know, really wanted to focus on uh, getting to be a, a reasonably good vegetable grower, and so we sort of paired back. Um, and so, like, like I said, probably ninety-five uh, percent of our income comes from uh, the, the vegetables, and of that, you know, the bulk of that comes through our CSA. We do some wholesale um, and direct sale, and we do quite a bit of stuff that goes to food shelves in the cities, uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul, but. Um, but the CSA is really the sort of bread and butter for our farm.
2: The CSA bread and butter.
1: Yes. Yeah.
2: And <laughs> and explain a little bit from the context of um you know, I think it's a really I think it's a really important set of notions to get concretely into the minds of young farmers who are thinking about the trade off of, you know, tiny little parcels that are overpriced that are close in right. suburban markets versus you know, much more affordable land, but um, further out in the country with, um, you know, less accessible schools and services, more degraded rural economy, or more commodity-oriented economy. Could you, sure. I don't know, explain a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. That's something that. I, th-
1: I think about and I talk with people about. It. I mean, we did it sort of accidentally. I, I, um, I, I wish I could say that when we started our farm, I had, like, really thoroughly thought out <laughs> the move but in fact, it was this was the opportunity, and so I came here. I was, you know, I was in my early twenties. But um... as far as the trade offs are concerned, yeah, I mean, when we bought our property, we were able to buy our, uh, you know, our land for under five hundred dollars an acre um, at the time, which gave us a lot of flexibility. It's something that I see that happens a lot with young farmers. Uh, we see it a lot. Minnesota's had an explosion of CSA farms and small vegetable farms and. Uh, um is that you know similarly people want to stay obviously for transportation reasons within that you know 40 miles of a large metropolitan area um and you know not just for transportation issues but the the land values here can be as high as ten thousand dollars an acre and so what i see happens is people buy you want to buy enough land that your business can grow because obviously you know that you can't just buy for what you're ready to farm immediately if you're getting started. And so the amount of money that people have to sink into their land and then the interest payments on that, especially on land that's not going to be productive for several years, um, then forces a set of of decision making that isn't necessarily in the best interest of the farm. I've seen a lot of people ramp up very, very, very quickly um really too quickly and make mistakes because they have this pressure of a, of a very expensive mortgage. Um and so for us, you know, uh, the cheapness of the place that we live and of the taxes and uh, whatnot allowed us, gave us, and again it was inadvertent, I didn't plan it, I, I just got lucky, but it gave us a lot of room to screw things up and to uh, move really, really slowly in building our business in um, taking some of the pressure off uh, for feeling like it, it had to make a lot of money very quickly. Um, and, and I think that's good as you're learning and learning about what pieces of land, uh, you know, what parts of your farm are really good bits of farmland that are going to be highly productive or can take, you know, you know various cultivation techniques. And um, so, and then, you know, for me, there's all been all of these added bonuses that I didn't really expect. I mean, I I moved out here in my, like I said, my early 20s, and and I came from a large, I grew up uh, two and a half miles outside of New York City uh, in northern New Jersey. And um, so for me, the adventure of living, you know, there are few places that are as different from uh, Teaneck, New Jersey, as uh, Milan, Minnesota, in the United States at least. And um, so... For me, the adventure of living in a place that was really different from what I grew up with was uh, some of the attraction, and um, you know there are other benefits to living in a deeply rural area. There's there's lots of infrastructure that's not being used, and uh, we have an aging uh, population, so people are really looking for anybody who wants to move in, who and, and live in the area and uh, take over all these institutions that were built, you know, both two generations and three generations back. Um, and so that, that's, that's nice. You feel like, I feel like the work I do here doesn't get lost in the mix. I feel like, uh, it's, it's greatly appreciated. And, um, so I guess that's another, another bonus. And then, uh, you know, for me, I, I've learned to just love the quietness of it. <laughs> it's a really quiet place. I was just back in New York last week and I thought, oh, it's so much quieter here. So,
2: well, I I a lot of the points that you're making really um really jive with some of the conversations and, and uh, deliberations that I've been having with various various farmers in various stages of their decision making process and um and my own process. And I uh you know, another another kind of point that I wanted to just hear your view on is around those institutions. Um those institutions that, are, that kind of still exist in rural areas mm-hmm. and how appropriately scaled some of them are for the kind of work, the kind of coordinating work that needs to happen in, in this framework of re-regionalizing. Right. Uh, and, and yeah, well, I mean, the, I think
1: that, that one of the things is uh, that there are very, very strong networks that are already in place here, and they're familial networks and they're church based and they're they're the things that have been going on in rural America for the last you know several hundred years and um and so but they're they're smaller you know they're there and they're strong and they're degraded probably from where they were uh, fifty years ago, obviously but um they're there and so if if a person is willing to take the time and say, you know, I care, I'm moving into this community, I love this community, I'm going to be here. I mean, I think people are suspicious of you at first and feel like, well, you know, who's this newcomer and what are they going to do, to, you know? Um, but then I think once you're in, um, things happen really smoothly, and the scale is very manageable. Like, it, 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 the number of people that you have to convince to have something happen, I mean, if you're, if you're someone who likes to make change, the number of people in a rural community that you have to convince is very, very small. There are very few people that, that are engaged in, in decision-making in general out here. Um, and so it, if you're willing to put in the energy and you're willing to be one of the people who shows up, um, you know, whether that be on the school board or um, in any other way, um, I think people are people are are excited to see a young person come and and want to steward this thing that that means a lot to them you know once they get over their their suspicion about you as an outsider um and so yeah, I find it very nice i mean I find it to be one of those things where um you can make a lot of change really quickly <laughs> i mean you don 't want to usually, but you can um it's it 's there and it 's waiting for people. And uh, and we need it. I mean, it's, I live here. I, I think I had all sorts of notions growing up in a city about what rural areas, you know, deeply rural areas, particularly in the Midwest, were like. And most of the thoughts I had were negative, that this was a very backwards place. And, um, I, you know, the typical stereotypes. And, of course, living here, it, it's not that way at all. It's uh, It's like anywhere else. There's people trying to figure out how to feed their families and live good lives and pass on the things that are meaningful to them to uh, the next generation and not see it wasted. I mean, I think that's when I talk to elders in this area. I think that there's a deep sadness about the idea that these things that they, bu- they built aren't going to be used by anybody, and uh, there's lots of people that would be would love to use them. I mean, uh, <laughs> I would hope. so.
2: Well I feel like you're, your you're pointing the way really productively and constructively um, around some kind of common themes or some what do they call it common ground some mm. some places where where you know whatever political differences or commodity differences we might have there's you no know, opportunity to come together and i I wondered if you have um anything that you wanted to say, I mean, or I guess here's a prep proposition. Do you feel yeah. like the um, in these conversations about succession and the, the way that land moves forward, mm-hmm. uh, either intergenerationally or to newcomers, or in, in many cases what's happened and has continued to happen or in, and, will, and is continuing to happen is more concentration of land ownership um, mm-hmm. and absentee ownership, and... Um, do you feel like the theme of local control and, and local business is a is a a powerful and usable platform for for conversations about about land and, and um or what are the frames that you would recommend for younger people who are coming into communities and trying to engage, you know, respectfully but um to have some to have a place of common ground for communication about the destiny of the farm land and farm ownership matrix within a community sure
1: well, I mean, I think that one thing is that it takes time to even begin the dialogue with people that if if you come from the outside and you're full of ideas as I was and, and most people are who who you know move in, in, you know are, are on this little adventure here. Um, that, that I think what people, before people are willing to listen to you, they need to feel like you're not going to be dangerous to them in their community. And so part of that is being there. I just, I feel like, um, like we continue perhaps in the minds of many people out here to be uh, the weirdos, but now we're their weirdos. <laughs> and we're not, we're not the weirdos, we're their weirdos. And so, and we've been here and our kids are in school and you know we volunteer with various organizations, and we and we show up. We consistently show up um, for things, and so um, I think that that people are are less afraid of engaging in the conversation if they feel like, oh yeah, this person actually is has a vested interest in what is good for this community, not what is just going to be good for them in the short run, um, and so yes I think that those that conversation is good I think there's a whole generation of aging uh, farmers who get um, that you know our community can't survive I mean that if we keep consolidating farmland there's just nobody here I mean uh, you know it will, you look at the main streets in all these little towns Montevideo which is the bigger town that we live near um, you know has probably 25% of the storefronts are, are, uh, you know, underutilized or non-utilized at this point. I mean, we we don't have a bookstore anymore. We we don't have a bakery anymore. We don't have some of these really kind of foundational things because there just aren't enough people to support, you know, to to support those things. And I think that that, um, people know that. I think think there's that older generation that knows it. Um, And I do think that talking about that you can – you can open up that dialogue. And we, we see it happening around here. We see lots of people that are, are um, reaching out to young, young farmers or people that want to farm and saying, you know, I've got a couple acres here. I've got this abandoned farm site. Um, you know, you want to try doing something on it? And, and I think the, the payoff for them is that idea that, that someone will be there to take care of their, you know, the place that was their home for the last, whatever, 80 years or 75 years of their life. But, but I think that, again, moving into rural community, a lot of it is about um, first showing people that you're serious. Before you begin engaging in the conversation, uh, show them that you care about the things that they care about. But, and once you do that, I think they're going to be more likely to engage. I think, well, now I care about what you care about as well. Let's, what do you care about? Um, but but I think you have to first build those connections. i I've definitely seen that here.
2: Well I mean, yeah, okay, so that's I mean, this is really useful. I mean this is these are great general themes that we keep working around and through and I but I think, you know, to take it one level more specific that if if you're looking at your if you're looking at your prospects so as a twenty seven year old or twenty five year old and you've worked on a bunch sure. of farms and you haven't got any money and you don't you know, you barely haven't a car Right, and you're thinking, "Wow, this is really—I mean, the only way I'm going to be able to do this is through the gift economy—or being really rural—that it would right. maybe make sense to also prepare professionally for the kinds of skills that are really needed in rural communities."
1: Sure, absolutely. Be that absolutely. nursing and or
2: chimney sweeping, or yeah,
1: I mean, there's everything. I mean, we've got lots of uh, nursing homes. <laughs> right, we're ready. We're always hiring nurses out here. Uh, but um yeah, no, absolutely, I mean, I think and then, and then I mean it 's not for everybody. We certainly have had over the last seventeen years people that have moved out here and just sort of felt like um i you know they felt they may perhaps felt isolated or I mean one of the things that I have found really pleasurable living here is that it 's forced me out of a lot of my my comfort zones, so I think when I lived in the cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul, or when I grew up, I tended to surround myself largely with people who thought like me, um, and you know, sort of generally speaking. And and there, you could do that. There's enough people that you can really surround yourself with a. Uh, you can you can put yourself into a great little echo chamber, and and it feels good, sort of. But uh, what I really have liked is there's just not enough people to do that out here. Um, so um, and that goes in a lot of different ways. So, like, we have friends that are in their 90s, and we have fr- I have friends that are 13. I don't think that I would have as wide a range of friendships in various ages if I didn't live out here. It, we're, we're really forced to. I have friends that are very, very right on the political spectrum. And, I, and I, when I say friends, I actually mean they're, they're friends. They're people that I love. And I have, you know... I would say we're probably around all the way out on the left out here, although there might be somebody further out. Um, but, but um, you know, we have and, – and that sort of forced me to, to move outside of my comfort zone and to talk to people about things and to listen to people tell me about the things that they care about um, that, you know, to me seem crazy, you know. But, but, uh, but you have to. If we're going to be building community, you have to start with where people are at As opposed to where you want them to be, and so uh, again, for living in rural area, I mean, it's not for everybody, but um, but I I think once you get past that, if if you see these limitations as assets, so another like little funny thing is like I learned how to bake bagels, (laughs) and I never want to learn to bake bagels. This is really tangential, but. But if I didn't live out here, I let, you know, I, I grew up a Jew in New York eating bagels. And there aren't bagels. I mean, I, feel I, could get a, I could get like some crappy uh, bagel at the grocery store in a bag. But, so it's the same thing. It, it, that sort of is, is widespread. So you have to, if you want to live in a deeply rural area, you have to sort of like the idea of constraining yourself. You, you, on Friday night, you can't pick the 50 different things you could go out and you know and the the plays and the and the bands you could go see and the the art house movies and whatnot. That's just not there. <laughs> but you know you can do anything. You you make something to do uh, among you and your friends, and so that's another aspect of it. I think it it's it's um, it's really for people that uh, wanna. Want to explore a little more deeply, maybe, um, you know, what they're capable of. So I don't well, know well, and flash
2: you make it compelling enough. If you if you're at it long enough, if if the thing happens well enough, there's likely to be this. You know, at least in the place I live, there's all these civic institutions and facilities that could be re inhabited yeah. with that kind of social programming.
1: And then there's all sorts of crazy stuff that's going on in rural America that you just don't hear about. So, like, we have a little town, Milan, the closest town, uh, spelled like Milan, and, you know, town of 500, Scandinavian, you know, largely Norwegian, a uh, little bit of Swedish heritage, really, like, they're known for that. They've got big Norwegian or Scandinavian pride. But, but I think 40% now of Milan are, are people who come from one island in Micronesia, this island of choc and so you walk down main street milan minnesota which is this little town teeny little town and there are islanders in beautiful floral skirts and flip-flops and you can go to the little grocery store teeny little grocery store and you can buy octopus and there's (laughs) i mean so this is happening all over there's you know it's, it's 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 uh... It's funnier than you would imagine, <laughs> and uh, and I think that's going on everywhere. And it's and again, as as the people that were here retreat from this area or die, um, you know, it's here, it's here, it's waiting, and it's either going to go to us or it's going to go to corn and soybeans. So uh, I don't know. I'd rather see it go
2: to us. To us. Well, I our time has come to an end. I'm sad. I, I would love to hear more. I I feel like this is just the beginning of a really wonderful uh, discourse, and we didn't even hit most of the other topics that we. Did. Um, I want to always give a chance for you to call out uh, to suggest other uh, young farmers some resources or methodologies or books or speakers or ideas for their lives that you would. Uh, so well i just
1: them. i'm gonna plug a book written by a friend of mine, and I'm sure other people have plugged or maybe you've already talked about it on the show but uh turn here sweet corn by atina Diffley, um and it's memoir and I'm not a fan of memoir i i actually i i usually hate memoir, but she wrote it and it was i picked it up and it's brilliant she's a friend of ours she a uh, been a farmer for uh maybe forty years or 30, 30 something years not forty years um and just it's just a great book about um, about doing what we do, about engaging with the land and the landscape, and uh, and and growing food for people. And, and I I don't know, I recommend it. It's a great Midwestern book.
2: Turn your sweet corn, awesome. Get on your toes, everybody, and register for those winter scholarships. This BFRDP money, we can't take it for granted. Make sure that we use up every little last scholarship that there is. Thank you so much
1: uh, for coming on the show. Oh, certainly, it was nice talking with you. It gave me a chance to stand by the wood stove and warm up.
2: Yeah, it gave me a chance to sweep the front porch. Alrighty, <laughs> talk soon. Bye, everybody.
1: Take care. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website